Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hello, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, with me today is Michaela Crabtree, a, uh, a teacher, a, uh, a mom, an advocate, and a someone who is engaging uh, openly and honestly with uh, the world today. So welcome to the podcast, Michaela. Hi, thanks for having me. So Michaela, tell me what led to you being so civic-minded and being so interested in becoming an advocate for other groups of people. Um, well, I was a high school and junior high school history teacher. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, it was really personal, just like studying history. Um, it uncovered a lot of you know, injustices that maybe I wasn't aware of that I didn't learn in school. And so um, I just feel like being vocal is really the only way you can be, How, you know, unless, you know, then you're part of the problem, right? So yeah. for me, I wanted to, it was important for me to be vocal, not only for myself, but for my kids, for mm -hmm. my students, for the other people that I work with. I just felt like it was really important or always has been important to me to speak up when, you know, when I need to, <laughs> when mm -hmm. things are important to speak up about. Um, my dad was that way. And I think he really set the tone in our household um, to speak up when, you know, you see something that's wrong, whether it be, you know, particularly now is, you know, a time where people, more people I think are stepping up and saying, Hey, you know, such and such isn't right or um, mm -hmm. we're going about this all wrong. But it was even just like little things, um, you know, like my dad would say, if someone's, you know, being mean to somebody at school, that's your responsibility to <laughs> step in and be like, hey, what's going on? Um, <laughs> so I think it's just like the tone that was set. Um, and it it's really funny. Um, Anthony was saying, uh, you know, like I'm vocal, but I'm also white. Um, that's something that I have like really struggled, I want to say, with like this new um, this new landscape right now is like, okay, like coming to like realize your whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. i'm I'm Hispanic. so <laughs> for, <laughs> for me, like I look white because my dad is was white, but um he died when I was very young. and yeah. my stepdad, is Hispanic. My mom is Hispanic. My whole extended family is. So I grew up in a very Hispanic household. I just didn't look like everybody. So, mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was like, um, really important for me because I'm white, because I don't get treated differently. Like my family does. I feel like there was even extra emphasis for me to use that power <laughs> for good, yeah. you know, to speak up. So especially for my parents, you know, my parents, um, they're dark skinned. And so mm -hmm. they were, I remember instances where they were treated differently and, um, especially my mom. So that was, that was hard, you know, and people would ask if she was my nanny and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So it was, it was weird to see that as a kid. Um, but 
you know, my kids, you know, my kids grow up and I, you know, I asked them the other day, I was like, do you feel, can, you know, cause they're, you know, my husband's white, I'm white presenting, you know, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, um, and this whole landscape that we've been in, I've just been talking to them more about like their whiteness and how they see it and who, you know, um, what their role is and kind of, you know, probably more to the point than my dad was, but yeah. Well, and, and you, you grew up in Arizona, right? Yeah. So, um, I spent the first 12 years of my life in Costa Mesa, California. And, um, but my whole extended family lived in Mesa, Arizona, which, you Mm -hmm. know, I would spend summers there. So it's like, I grew up there as well. Um, after I was about like 12, we moved back and I lived there until I was, uh, like 25 and then we moved here. So yeah, a lot of my, (laughs) a lot of memories there for sure. Well, and, and do you see differences in terms of the way that, that people address race or ethnicity, um, in Arizona, California compared to New Jersey? Um, yeah, I mean, Arizona, Arizona is like, you know, it's a red state. So, mm-hmm. um, their focus too, since we're a border state is very much on illegal immigration and, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, the issues are just a little bit different here. Um, I feel like there's probably a little bit more activism. Um, but I, again, like I didn't really live in Arizona during a time where it was like, so politically stratified, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Arizona, just like you, if you're <laughs> if you're liberal leaning in Arizona, um, it's it's kind of um, daunting to be around uh, <laughs> uh, so many people who aren't. And so mm-hmm. I feel like that has lended to people maybe not speaking out so much um, because it's you know it's scary on so many levels. It's like a, a open carry state. It's a concealed, you know, you can carry a concealed weapon. And it's just like one of those things where just, you know, I remember my dad telling me, he's like, now don't get into any arguments with anybody. Um, because you don't know (laughs) who is carrying a weapon. And I just, and even like when I was learning how to drive a car, he was like, don't, don't get any road rage. He's like, don't get Mm -hmm. mad at people because people get crazy. And out here, you don't know what they're going to do. So I think, <laughs> I think that that change that changes the entire dynamic, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. So I think, um, you know, I think for the most part, we kind of just are like, oh, why are people like this? And um, try to do our best in like the little areas that we can, like whether we're teachers in schools or, um, you know, uh, working in family services or stuff like that, like trying to Mm -hmm. make our differences in that sort of way. Um, Whereas here, I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like more people have been outspoken about their um, ideals and their ideas about race and racism more than I have ever experienced anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I've, you know, my, my mother grew up in California um, and I think, you know, she, she found a big cultural difference from California to Philadelphia when she moved in the sixties. But I think now there's probably more of a, a cultural shift coming from um, more of the interior States and going to one of the coasts. And, you know, I mean, and there are, there are parts of California that are very conservative and very uh, kind of focused on um, 
those types of issues. But for the most part, when you get into heavily populated areas, I think you see more people, you know, yeah. you see more diverse people. And so you, you get more accustomed to, you know, addressing those types of issues, maybe a little bit more openly. Um, but what, tell, tell me, tell me why being a, a high school and junior high history teacher really, um, puts this into context for you because you're, you're, you're coming in contact with so many young minds. Yeah. Um, well for me, it was really important. So when I, when I had my first year of teaching, um, it was election year and Obama, it was, uh, the Obama election. And Mm -hmm. I remember my seventh graders in particular, like being really just, excited about it, excited about, you know, being in school during an election. Mm-hmm. And I was excited because this was my first year being a history teacher. And what a year, right? Um, sure. The newspapers um, had like articles and stories about political opinions and everything. And I just thought it was like the perfect opportunity to get my kids to think about what their what their forming ideals are, right? Mm-hmm. What's important to them outside of what their parents think. Um, and <laughs> um, so I would have them do uh, basically little reports about, okay, you get to pick a newspaper article, whichever one you want. I want you to tell me mm-hmm. why it's valid. Tell me um, what it doesn't have any bias in it. Do you agree with it? Oh, wow. Um, all these things. And they loved it. And I loved it because they could bring me an article from like one of the most conservative newspapers and then come out saying, well, I don't agree with this or saying I do agree with this, but they had to tell me why. And they couldn't mm-hmm. say, well, cause my parents said blah, blah, blah. They had to come up with their own take on it. Why they believed that whatever that article was saying was true. Wow. And so, um, to me, that was like one thing that I had done in high school from one of my <laughs> high school teachers. And mm-hmm. I loved it because it was my first experience with, Hey, I can have my own ideas. I can do things. And for me, that was really important to give them that autonomy that, Hey, just because my parents think something, it doesn't mean that I have to. Um, so where I taught, was a charter school my first year of teaching um but we were very much in like a title one district so um these kids that were in this school was like a mix of kids whose parents came from money and mix of parents Mm -hmm. who didn't and we lived right by the reservation so we had some kids that were coming in from the reservation not many um Mm -hmm. but it was just so eye-opening to me to see this diverse group of kids together and getting them to talk about these different ideas and subjects that were out there. Um, Because I feel like that's what lends to more open thought and more talking and diversity in your thinking and thinking about the other person. Um, So it was really important to me because these kids are living in that time when I was teaching, they were living um, during a historic moment. I feel, and I really wanted them to dissect that because I feel like that's one of the most important parts of your history class or a history class is figuring out, okay, where do I stand in all of this? Um, and I think I, I learned that from my teachers 
Well, yeah, and and you're also bringing them an enormous amount of context because you're you're giving them the ability to to develop a, a sense of critical thinking. I mean, the the idea of bringing in bias uh, and helping them understand that is, I mean, it's fascinating because I don't think you we would have been teaching bias uh, as a as a skill set, <laughs> uncovering bias, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. were, you know, 30 years ago. So, and then on top of it, what I find fascinating is that there's something about having um, a diversity of uh, incomes and backgrounds that you have this unusual opportunity when you have a diverse group of kids to actually turn the lens uh, on why they understand and like each other. Because there are lots of school districts where there are just rich kids or where there are just poor kids or where there are just, you know, American Indian or, or Hispanic. And when you, when you're lucky enough to be in a place that has diversity, it's a lot easier to knock down those barriers because those prejudices, if you carry them, they come along with faces of people, you know, and, and you interact with. So how, how do you take... Uh, were you conscious of that, you know, in, in showing them that, you know, you can look at sources of information that skew one way or the other, and that there's an, there's an underlying, uh, kind of intent to those things? Well, yeah. Um, I wanted, I absolutely wanted to be teaching in a, in a title one district is, was my mm -hmm. goal. Right. I also lived in that community. Um, mm -hmm. and that was important to me, even though, <laughs> In all of the teacher programs, they tell you, do not live where you teach. Do not. Oh, do sure. That. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, challenge accepted. I will. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it because I loved that the kids got to see me as a person. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that. I think in my classroom, I wanted them to see each other as he, like human beings, right? We all come yeah. from these different backgrounds. I had a kid who like grew up on a ranch. And then I had mm. a kid who, whose parents just moved here from LA. And then I had, you know, I had all these kids from all these diverse groups and getting them to think about how the world sees them like outside of themselves, right? How the world mm -hmm. generalizes those populations is important for them to figure out, you know, okay, so if this is how I'm being perceived, you know, what am I going to do about that? <laughs> well, and then, and then on the other side, what, what am I being told about another group that right. maybe is just as inaccurate as what they're saying about, you know, the group I'm a part of. Exactly. So, so, so when you come, you know, and, and I, I too came from a, you know, a diverse school district. Um, my, you know, my parents were working class and, and I think there's, there's something about a, almost a chameleon like personality when you straddle different groups, whether you're first generation and you're trying to straddle the, you know, the, the country where your, your family came from and the U S or if you're kind of up on, on an upward mobility track in terms of incomes and you move to a different neighborhood, do you find that the, that you're a bit of a, a, a chameleon that way at when you were growing up that you, you were able to be one way and then a different way and kind of, and, and, and bounce back and forth between these different groups or, um, or did it all kind of blend for you? Uh, I think I was definitely chameleon and I think I tend to still be, um, mm -hmm. just based on as an adult, the groups of friends that I have, 
um, and people that I socialize with, I feel like that's just, I feel like that's such an asset though, um, Mm. to be able to come in and out of different situations and, and be able to mingle with different types of people, um, and really kind of explore a little bit. I feel like that has enabled me to do that. Um, it gives you a little bit of a freedom, but I don't think, I don't think that that's common, um, a common experience to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that you get that from diversity. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up, um, like I said, in a predominantly, uh, Hispanic household. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to a school in California. My best friend was Korean. My other friend was Cantonese. My, you know, I, I had other Mm -hmm. friends who were Hispanic, just like me. Um, you know, and I really think that helped those first experience helped me, um, form that foundation of being able to adapt to different people, different cultures, different, you know, um, lifestyles Mm -hmm. and not be there from a place of judgment. You know, my, my dad, I keep coming back to it because it is my dad. My dad was Mm -hmm. my partner in crime. He, my stepdad, um, he uh, raised me just to, uh, you know, judge people based on how they treat you or how they treat others. And for him, it was really important for him, for me to see how lucky I was, no matter Mm -hmm. what our financial situation was, but how lucky I was that we had a home and that we had food and that we were loved and um, that not everybody had that. And I feel like um, his education, giving giving me that education um, really helped me to bring those types of experiences to my students. Um, but And also to be a better teacher, to not judge a student for not coming to class on time or pick on a kid because he's eating his breakfast sandwich as he's coming into a hour. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like picking my battles, um, with things that, you know, aren't, aren't important to me. I remember, um, I was teaching 11th grade (laughs) one year and I was teaching at a different, a different school, still in the same community, but at the high school and, you know, all schools have their rules about, you know, no eating, no chewing gum. And so I had my first hour class and, um, I happened to be pregnant with my first child and um, they're like, what's your policy on food? You know, Mrs. Crabtree. I was like, listen, as long as you're in my class on time, it's fine. We're like, we're in class at 7 a.m. Bring Mm. me a sausage McMuffin and we're cool. (laughs) (laughs) Bring me a Pop-Tart and we're solid. Um, And that totally changed their dynamic of like, okay, so she, you know, she's not going to pick on these little things, you Mm -hmm. know, it's just, it enabled them to relax. And that was such like a little thing, but I know how hard it was for them to get to school, just to get to school. And at seven in the morning, oh my gosh, sure, that's crazy. But, you know, but there's something about food and, and conversation too. If you, you know, and I, I, I found that it, you know, I taught at uh, university level for a while and, um, you know, if you let people talk and eat, their barriers come down. I don't know why that is. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it because it feels like you're sharing in an experience. 
Hmm. And, you know, you're building community. And it, for me, it was like, I knew that a lot of these kids had a lot, a lot of other obstacles in their way that I didn't want to be one more. I don't want to be one more voice telling them or criticizing them about something that literally didn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just happy to see their faces, to be honest. <laughs> and I, and it's so wonderful that I get to, I mean, Facebook has its issues, but it has enabled me to still see these students who, you know, I taught in seventh grade and are now like getting their master's degree. And it's, yeah. So wonderful to see them like blossoming into people and um it's just it's just wonderful. Well, it's it's funny you say that. I um I reconnected with a with the middle school history teacher of mine and uh on Facebook found him and uh and it was a, an amazing experience because this was somebody who who opened my eyes to th- the immediacy of history that it wasn't just a series of dates that right now the things that are happening around you in 20, 30 years are going to be in a textbook. And that stayed with me. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you teach history as a living, breathing course, um, it, it changes people, you know, it puts things in context. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. What's going on now? Do you think? As a history major, as somebody who teaches history, what's happening right now that it feels like there's such an enormous amount of tension um, and that and that these issues seem for some reason to be more immediate and more important? I think the main difference is our access to information, right? I think our main difference is um, access to each other and to seeing what's happening Um especially within like the black community, especially those of us who don't um, experience that type of racism day to day, you know, um, I think it was really eye opening uh, for people to, I'm, I'm speaking to like George Floyd. I think it was really mm-hmm. important for people to see um, what is happening because I think it's been talked about, but I either, people just get complacent or it just fades from their memory or I don't know what it is. But I think, unfortunately, seeing is believing for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like what we're seeing now is people, um, and I've heard this said before, is like people are waking up, people who weren't um, aware that this type of thing happens um, are waking up and they're furious, right? Um, Yeah. But... Well, isn't that what Will Smith said? It's like this this has been going on forever. We're you're just seeing it because we're catching it on tape and we're seeing yeah. it on film. You know, if you can videotape it or you can video it, it's not even tape. Um yeah. that immediacy changes everything. It's hard Absolutely. to to ignore that. So so is you know, I, I'm the same age as Will Smith and he, you know, he grew up in Philly. So I know there were places where we were on South Street. Mm-hmm. At a particular time. And I can tell you categorically that in Philadelphia in the 1980s, I was treated worlds different than he would have been treated on South Street. If I was loud on South Street, some, a cop may have told me to be quiet. If a black kid my age was loud on South Street, they might have gotten pulled off the street. Yeah. And, you know, you say you grow up in the same place, but... 
you know, the idea that you may not look Hispanic or, or the idea that you may not, you know, look, uh, black, um, and you get treated slightly differently that, that has a huge impact on people. So if, if what this is doing is actually shining a big spotlight on it, is it, um, are you finding it easier to talk about these issues because there's factual evidence? I feel like there's always been factual evidence, right? I feel like mm -hmm. it's just more in people's faces now. Um, yeah. I do feel like it's easier to talk about it um, because I feel like um, people are more willing to listen. Mm. The And I, I see that just in like how books are flying off the shelves about how to be an anti-racist or mm. um, books speaking to black authors' experiences. Um, mm. I, I think that people want to be better. I do. I genuinely believe that. I, I do think there's a group of people who don't, you know, I, I definitely <laughs> think that as well. Um, but I do think that it's like a growing pain. People have to deal with their guilt for not realizing it or not believing it or whatever it is that kept them away from these issues um, and then digest it. And then, okay, how do I help now? In what capacity could I, I help? And I stay home with my kids now and I've been talking a lot to my friends about, um, you know, Hey, what can we do within our parameters? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's the first step is reaching out to people who, you know, and saying, Hey, let's talk about this. Do you, is any, you know, what in this conversation is making you uncomfortable and let's unpack that and let's figure out why. And I think I'm more willing to, instigate that now. Mm. Um, whereas maybe like, I don't know, five years from now, it might be, I don't know, weird to go up to my friend and say, <laughs> Hey, so how are you, uh, you know, uh, combating or, you know, coming to terms with your whiteness and, yeah. um, what do you, what work are you doing towards social justice for, um, you know, people of color? Well, whereas well, now that, that, I feel like people are more willing. Well, and I, and I also think there was every once in a while, you're inundated with, with information and every once in a while a concept sticks and it stays with you long enough that you start to use it as a filter. And I, and the one that stuck with me in the last two months was that racism isn't a person of color's problem. It's a white person's problem. Mm -hmm. And as I looked at that and I thought, okay, so you can say that, you know, you can have a Hispanic person who might, you know, have something against Asian people or Asian people against, you know, uh, black people, et cetera. But they're each experiencing a power structure that is shaped predominantly by, you know, European men. Mm -hmm. um, and as somebody who's, you know, 75% European man, according to some <laughs> genetic test where they swap my cheek, um, I find it really, really helpful to realize that racism is a white person's problem. Because then I, I feel like I have a role to play, um, which sounds stupid, but, but I think it's true. Um, oh, yeah. the, but it does, it does give rise to a series of awkward questions <laughs> and exchanges. Uh, do you find that there are people that are no longer in your life because you've been more vocal in how you see the world? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I do. Um, uh, you know, I have um, step siblings, and um, my stepbrother actually, um, who I love very much and would love to talk to him, uh, he just is gets very angry mm-hmm. about my opinions. And um, I don't know if it's specifically about what I'm saying, or I, I don't know if he's feelings, I, I don't know what, where that's coming from, yeah. but that's definitely been a, a relationship that has been negatively impacted by mm-hmm. my opinions. Um, but, you know, they're my family. They've always known my opinions. Um, mm. And the fact that I'm calling the people out specifically, <laughs> I think really, um, got under his skin and so uh, in one of our interactions he was just mm, he wasn't using kind words let's just say on social media (laughs) towards me and um you know I basically was like wow I must have hit a nerve and I really encourage you to figure out what I said to make you feel so angry um and I kind of put it back on the person Because Mm. if what I'm saying makes you so angry that you feel like you have choice words for me. Yeah. And and I'm not talking about anything crazy. I'm talking about treating people with kindness and love and respect and decency, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So for me, if those are things that really shake you to your core, let's do some digging into why that makes you feel insecure. Mm. you know, one thing my husband had told me, I met him when I was in high school. So mm-hmm. it must have been, I was probably like early 20s. And I was having like a, like I felt weird around a person and I felt like they didn't like me. And mm-hmm. I felt like the way they were treating me was showing me they didn't like me. And mm-hmm. um, he said to me, the way people treat you isn't about you. It's about them. It's about something they're struggling with. And I remember thinking, you are the smartest person alive because I have never, it's having it framed that way has forever made me look at a situation or how I'm being treated and being like, Oh, okay. Let's do some work on you. (laughs) Um, and how I treat other people. If I'm feel like I need to treat somebody in a way that's not so kind, I'm like, Mm -hmm. try to be introspective and like, okay, what is it about it <laughs> that I feel insecure about or how do yeah. I feel guilty and how am I putting that on somebody? Um, which I think, you know, it's hard to do and I, you know, I'm not perfect at it, but it's a starting point. And I think that's how everybody has to take social justice as work with social justice is no one's perfect. We're all mm-hmm. gonna, we're all gonna mess up you're as long as we're working in the right direction and you're able to say, Hey, I messed up. I was wrong. Yeah. How do I move forward from this? That's important. Well, like, that's hard to do. Right. I mean, that's to, to, first of all, I love the idea that, you know, somebody explained it to me, like, you, you know, you're, you're just a character actor in somebody else's drama. Right. I mean, you just float <laughs> in and out every once in a while. You're not even like a main character. Right. Um, you're like a guest star on an episode of their life. Um, and you put all this weight behind it. Um, but but I think it's it's interesting when you start to look at the fact that um, at the end of the day, we are going to make mistakes. And 
it's human to do that, but the idea of talking about them, um, you know, I didn't know that the neighborhood that I grew up with, uh, that I grew up in, um, did not have, uh, any people of color because it was redlined. They wouldn't yeah. let anybody who was Hispanic, African-American into that neighborhood. I didn't know it. I just realized that the, the neighborhood across the way had black and Hispanic people. My neighborhood didn't. When you come to those realizations as a kid, it's a big eye opener. You know, when I had my friend Glenn come over after school and people were giving me a, a strange look, mm -hmm. um, there's wake up calls. Have you, have you found your kids getting, I mean, as you talk to them, are they getting wake up calls even at their young ages? Are they, are they seeing these things in their interactions? Um, I think so. I mean, it's, it's little things. So we talk to them about what's going on. Uh, I have a 10 year old, a six year old mm -hmm. and a two year old. She doesn't know what's going on. She knows she's a princess. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, but my 10 year old and six year old, um, yeah, my six year old had a best friend, um, in his kindergarten class before quarantine came upon us. Mm -hmm. And, um, he moved away. He moved to New York. They were best friends. And, um, when, uh, everything happened with George Floyd and they were talking about, um, defunding the police mm. and, um, there was an incident in a neighboring town, um, where, uh, a, it was like a teenager, uh, a young black kid who was pepper sprayed by the police mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just seeing things closer to home one night he, oh, they had come back from the, they had went to a protest with my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, it was like from the kids at Wood, Woodland, it is a neighboring town, um, mm -hmm. coming, they come to our high school. They're part of our school district. Yeah. So it was just showing them solidarity and the kids really wanted to go. And so they went, it was our first time, obviously going to a protest like this. And, yeah. um, I think it energized them. I think it also brought up some concerns for them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, cause it's the energy is palpable, you know, whether it's peaceful or, mm -hmm. you know, or not, it's, you know, everybody's feeling feelings. So they came home and my six-year-old um, said, I really hope my friend Abram's okay. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, oh, and, you know, Abram's black. And I said, okay, um, what, do, what do you mean? Because we're in a pandemic. So what do you, <laughs> yeah, sure. what do you mean? He's like, well, yeah, that, because he's in New York. He's like, but people are going to see him differently when he is older. And I said, mm -hmm. Yeah, babe. And so, you know, then we started this conversation about, okay, so our whiteness is like a superpower, right? Right now. How mm. can we use that to defend our friends who are vulnerable? And, you know, and so we talked about different situations. He's like, well, someone's bullying them. Or, you know, if, if there's a police officer and wants to talk to my friend and they might be a person of color, I'm going to stay with them. So mm -hmm. getting them to just think about those types of things, um, it was hard. It was really C hard to hear them talk about that. That is a smart kid. Um, so I have a, I, I, I travel a lot for work and I was in Greece, um, 
with a couple of people. And one of the guys I was with, um, he does a lot of business in Saudi Arabia. And he's in and out of Saudi Arabia. And I was in line in Greece and they pulled me out of line and said, oh, you have to go through an advanced security check. And they took me maybe, I don't know, 50 feet away and they unpacked everything in my bag. And it's fine. I, I for some reason, get pulled out of lines more often than not. I don't know if I fit a profile. But um, so they're ripping it apart. And I look over and there's Mike. And he's not moving. They're asking him to move on. He's refusing to move. He's just standing there. And after I get all packed up and come back, um, I said, Mike, why did you do that? He's like, I, I, don't, I don't leave whoever I'm traveling with. He said, I've been in and out of Saudi Arabia and I've seen people do that. And as soon as there aren't eyes on people, I, I see them go away mm-hmm. and they get taken into a back room. But if I'm there and they see me and I say something, he said, they're not likely to do it. He said, so I don't ever leave anybody. And I thought, wow, I am 50 years old and I did not have that knowledge. And it never occurred to me, but your child has that <laughs> knowledge. And, I know. And, and it's fascinating to me that, you know, how children will will process things. Um, do you let me ask you a different question? Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that we're in a significant changeover? Do you do you think this is akin to the sixties, the nineteen sixties? Is it is it that type of changeover in generations? And is is it a is it a sea change in terms of the the opportunity? I I think so. Um, I just feel like the young people who have um, been at the front lines of this Black Lives Matter movement are incredible and they are relentless, which I think are the qualities that you need in order to make change. Um, Not taking no for an answer. And I absolutely think, I don't think this is um, a whole new chapter. I think this is just an extension Mm. of the civil rights movement. I feel like these people have been doing work, hard work over the years, just like under the radar. And I think now it's just like, like you said, the spotlight is on them and Mm -hmm. the issues that they are facing as a community. And that those are our issues too. And we haven't addressed them. We've just said, Oh, you know, that's, that's too bad. Maybe, (laughs) maybe Mm -hmm. we can start an after school program or something. That's not enough. You know, it, it, the more work needs to be done, more equity needs to to happen. And I feel like more and more people are coming to that realization like, oh, hey, maybe programs like Head Start, that's a good start, but it's not enough. You know, and mm. I think the quarantine really um, showed that as well. I mean, look at everybody who's, you know, going back, you know, everybody's Go, trying to figure out how to go to work and make money and to, to support their family. Mm-hmm. There are people who can afford to have someone stay and watch their kids and homeschool them if need be. But sure. there is a giant population of people that cannot do that. And I think it's just showing the disparities, um, both economic and social that, you know, are ever present in our society. We just, have our blinders on and aren't well, that, forced to look at it. Yeah. I mean, that part fascinates me when you see that $600 a week, you know, in unemployment and people are yelling and screaming and saying, well, they're making more money on unemployment than they would if they were working. The, the problem isn't that you're giving them the $600. The problem is they're working 40 
hours a week and still can't afford to live on that. Right. So, so, and it always bothers me when they say, you know, uh, a teacher shouldn't make this amount of money because I don't make, you know, that amount of money. Right. You know, wages have stayed stagnant for a very, very long time. Well, and that doesn't take into consideration too, that like teachers are also asked to buy their own supplies. And like, why is that? <laughs> that doesn't happen in any other country. Why? Why is it? Well, maybe maybe it does in some in 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 some third world countries. I, sure. I have seen you know friends in Africa that have that have done that. But but for most established you know fully developed economies, teachers are you know are in well funded um, you know institutions, and their their expertise is appreciated uh, as as a teacher. Why do you think that? it is expected for you to take money out of your pocket. I, I have no idea to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I honestly don't think that education is valued enough. I, I mm-hmm. think that having schools is valued, mm. but not education. Um, because if it was, you would want, the teachers who are going to have the supplies that they need, not worried about scarcity, right? Sure. Um, only worrying about how do I how do I get these best experiences for my kids? I I mean, and teachers do it every day, you know, whether it's buying a ream of paper for their classroom or mm. um, figuring out how to get funding for speakers to come to their class or, you know, things like that. Like it doesn't stop. And I think that's the thing. It doesn't stop when you, when the, you know, the the bell rings at 3 PM people, um, teachers are trying to find ways to enrich their classroom experience Mm. for their kids. Well, well after that bell has rung and it's on their time and it's usually, um, with their money. Well, but, but so, so I, I agree a hundred percent with you and I, and I feel the same way. And I would, first of all, I, I, I don't think there's, there's anything that I've done that I've felt as great an amount of value in doing than teaching. Yeah. Uh, it also, if you want to learn something, try and teach it. Uh, <laughs> it's really hard to teach something if you don't know it really well. Yeah. Um, but, but I want to, I want to take you through something that, that I've been thinking about for, for the last couple of weeks. Um, I have a, a niece who's a nurse practitioner, and um, after she was done seeing patients, she would spend an hour and a half filling out charts after she wasn't getting paid. It was just things that she had to file, and she was expected to do that. And you look at um, you know, people who work in grocery stores bagging people's you know, groceries, and they're putting their lives at risk for that job. Mm -hmm. And you look at, you know, people who are in law enforcement who are, you know, a third social worker, a third, you know, negotiator, risk mitigator, uh, community, uh, activist, you know, in, and then they fit in the investigation of crimes. Mm -hmm. What's going on where we are asking people in service to, to do more than is acceptable, even down to, you know, speaking to somebody today about a, a new job they had and they had to go back to their boss and say, you know, this is four jobs in one. <laughs> I can't do all of the things that are in this job. What's happening in, in this world where it feels like it's okay to tell people that they can 
be given more responsibility than they're being compensated for. I think people in general, you know, people are, who are hiring others, you know, want a one-stop shop, right? Mm. Um, and I think it's unrealistic to have those expectations um, for one person to provide all of that, all of those, you know, to provide for all those needs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to have the training to do that. that I, and and I, I honestly think it's a, it's a um, education issue, not get being, ed, you know, I'm <clears throat> thinking more about the police right now. And I, mm-hmm. one thing that stood out to me was that um, in some states, cosmetologists have to have more hours of training than police do. Mm-hmm. That Absolutely. blew my mind. I know. Like the person who's cutting my hair yeah. has more <laughs> training hours than the person with a gun. And, um, I had no, I had no idea, um, that that was a thing. Um, and I think that's a really, that, that speaks to a huge disservice to the police officers, Mm -hmm. um, not only to the communities that they are serving, but to them, um, they're being put in impossible situations where they don't have the training to deal with it. Um, so, you know, and that's, while, and that's a, dip, that's such a difficult job anyway. If you're, yes. if you're a police officer and you're put in a position over and over and again, where you may feel your life is at risk, or you may feel like you, you don't have the ability to help people and you watch people die or you watch people, um, you know, slip into drug addiction. Um, if you look mm-hmm. at Kensington right now, that's, you know, it's like the, yes. the country's largest open air drug market. Um, you know, I used to, you know, I grew up in this area and used to drive into Camden and you would just, you know, I'd see people I knew who were on drugs, who were on a corner. Um, that's a lot of weight to put on a person as a police officer. So is it, is it that we got wrapped up in productivity? Is it that, you know, from the seventies, eighties on, it was all about making things more productive and maybe not, um, thinking about the human impact. I mean, it also coincides with the rise of billionaires. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, my husband and I, I feel like just being in quarantine has really opened our eyes to a lot of things, let me tell you. But one of Mm. them being, why do we have to go into work? Like, especially for his job, right? He's an electrical engineer. And the Mm -hmm. one thing that he has come to the realization of, he's like, you go to work, because that's how they watch over you, right? That's how they mm-hmm. say, oh, you're doing this. You're... There are specific things you need to be there for, right? But for the most part, if you can, if you have that type of job, why why are we there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's oversight. Um, it's, yeah, getting this, the whole point of getting this economy started, right, is so people can make money and so we can, you know, start hiring people back, hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. but it all comes with a price because, you know, we can't open our, you know, can't fully open our schools. But I think um, the people who are suffering are the mm-hmm. people who need the most, you know, the most help in society anyways. Um, not the billionaires, right? But no. they're the ones, they're the ones saying, you need, you need this. Like, no, you need that. You need us. That's, that's the opposite. You need us. So, you know, um, 
So what I, are I, these things? What are these things called? So I'm going to ask you. I'm going to put you on the spot, Michaela. Sure. If I, so we've got this issue of you know racism is not about people of color. It's about the white people who, per, who perpetuate it, right? And if you think about um, the the idea of you know wealth generation that the the owners need labor, they can't do what they 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 want to do without labor, and it's the inversion of that. <laughs> what do you call those those insights where we realize where the the authority or the power to change things sits? You know, I mean, are are they? <laughs> I don't even know what they are. Are they life lessons? Are they are they insights? Are they things that we lost touch? With, I I think they're all the things, right? And I think it's just, you know, <sighs> I think all I think a lot of people right now are trying to figure out what's important and what should be important to our society and how we take care of people in our society and where does, you know, your dream to become a billionaire fit into that. Um, <laughs> You know, and that's just like capitalism. And and I, I, I get it. I understand the economic system. I just, I feel like it lends to um, this business we have of othering people, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of, um, you know, nose to the grind, you know, to the grindstone mm -hmm. and work until you can't anymore, essentially. Yeah. Um, and, you know, basically work yourself to death. And for what? You know, and and, and that's what I think we're dealing with right now is the and for what? Um, because because well, right now people are, you know, they're, they're really struggling. And the ones that, um, you know, like you said, that need the help the most and, you know, are, un are on unemployment and kind of struggling through this time are probably sure. thinking, yeah. For what? I'm putting my life on the line to bag your groceries and for what? And for what? Well, and uh, so so I'm going to hold on to that thought because I'm going to come back to it in the last 10 minutes of, of, of the talk. But I want to go to something else. Have you seen the video about the race where they take a bunch of kids from a school and they say, okay, we're all going to do this race. Mm -hmm. Take two steps forward if you're a white man. Oh, yes. You know, I've take seen two this. steps. Yeah. So when you when you do that and you speak to somebody who's American Indian or you speak to somebody who is um, Pacific Islander and you and you show them statistics and the white guy keeps taking a step forward, a step forward, a step forward. And you realize that if you are a woman and you are an American Indian, Native American, that you are sitting at the back or if you're Samoan or whatever the wherever you fall in that. Mm -hmm. And then they say, now start the race. There are still people that disavow that. And yet we have statistics, we have science. So the, the last question before the, before the concluding stuff is, is really to you as an educator. Um, why do you think there is an anti-science or an anti-fact movement that is equating people's opinions as being as valid as fact? I think right now people are willing to believe what aligns with their own personal opinions to make them feel safe. I think 
right now we're living in a time of uncertainty. And when they can grasp upon pseudoscience or opinion that is presented as fact that aligns Mm. with what makes them comfortable, they are more willing to believe it. (laughs) And I feel like um, it all comes from a place of wanting to be secure, right? So it's a fear. I think so. Yeah. I think so. So if, and, and maybe in times of great change, there's great fear. Oh, absolutely. So, so then here, here are the two questions that I try to end on. Um, so what, and now what? So I'm going to start with, so what we've laid out inequity in, you know, socioeconomics status in terms of ethnicity and race, in terms of, um, just the, the hierarchy of, uh, of society. We've talked about the, the opportunities that we have as, you know, people that are identified as white. Um, so what, what does all of that mean for the time right now? Knowing all of that, why does it matter? Oh, because people matter, people matter. And, um, if there's, I, I feel like if we're to create a better future, and for our kids and better relationships for our kids, then we need to fix what's wrong with us, right? We need to do that internal <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. search amongst ourselves and figure out, okay, um, what what is it, what have I gained from, you know, if you're white, what have you gained mm-hmm. from your whiteness? And um, how did that, impact your life and what are you going to do to promote equity Mm. and um how how is that going to affect what you teach your kids you know the type of kids the type of people your kids grow up to be really you know i feel like it starts with how the tone you set at home sure um yeah, I don't so think anybody think, sets out to raise asshole kids. I, mean, I really, you know, I really hope not. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I like it talking, you know, opening the dialogue, I think is like really <laughs> important, especially with your kids in order for them to not be assholes. <laughs> yes. Um, talking to them and letting them know like, hey, I've made mistakes as a, you know, as a person, as a human being, this is how I'm trying to fix them. This is how I want. This is my big picture for our family. Mm-hmm. Let's not be let's be kind, let's be caring, let's care about issues that affect people that aren't us, you know, aren't like yeah. us. Maybe, you know, people who aren't in our same uh, socioeconomic group, maybe people mm-hmm. who don't have the same skin color as us. Let's care about them too, because they matter. Mm-hmm. Their so, success so then, is our success. So then, so then tell me now what, what do we do? You know, um, give me the the recommendation give me if you could if you could wave a magic wand and have people do this or not do that what would you do um i would have people step outside of their comfort zones mm-hmm. meet people who you normally wouldn't meet uh volunteer um volunteer in a school mm-hmm. um you know uh read <laughs> <laughs> read, read more and read, read, uh, more diverse 
um, literature, maybe from even more diverse authors. Sure. Um, for me, it's it all comes back to education and relationships. You know, um, sure, I have a love of history, but I, you know, I was also taught that, you know, we're all people and we all want love and security and um, that, you know, we're the same, you know, we're mm-hmm. the same and that um, treating someone otherwise based on, you know, their luck, <laughs> their luck of the draw, you know, of, yeah. you know, what family or what socioeconomic uh, status they were born into, you know, is not cool. Try to be the best person you can. And for me, at least that's through education and building relationships. I love that. And I, and I think the more you experience things, the, you know, that's, that's where you really start to internalize it. So I, I agree with you. I think that's a, that's a great idea. Um, that's all the time we have. I want to thank you, uh, Michaela, for, for joining us. I, I really did, uh, learn a lot from, from this discussion. Uh, I'm going to think differently having had this conversation with you. So thank you for, for being on the Allies podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.